0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming this evening. Um, May I say that it's very nice to see such support for the British novel, Good for the Soul. It's my great pleasure as LSE's first Royal Literary Fund Fellow to introduce your speaker this evening, Sir Howard Davies. Sir Howard has been Director of the London School of Economics since 2003. Before that, he served as Chairman of the Financial Services Authority, And before that, he was Deputy Director of the Bank of England following a long career as political advisor, both to to British industry and to the Treasury. But perhaps more importantly, for the purposes of this evening's talk, Sir Howard was Chair of the Judges for this year's Man Booker Prize, a panel which, if the press reports are to be believed, consisted of a select group of dedicated, opinionated, critically rigorous, and, of course, temperamentally argumentative souls each prepared to defend their favourite to the bitter end. They were, in addition to Sir Howard, the writers and critics Giles Foden and Ruth Skirr, the poet Wendy Cope and the actor Imogen Stubbs. Whatever else one might say about their shortlist selection announced at the end of the summer, it was striking for paying little heed to big-name hitters much to the chagrin, I am sure, of the large publishing houses who like to see healthy returns on writers that they consider front-runners in their stables. Instead, this was a short list that featured new talent, both homegrown and non-British, and that recognized novels, novelists who have garnered critical acclaim for earlier works, but who have never enjoyed the kind of mainstream success of the Rushdies and Amises of this world, novelists like Anne Enright and Nicola Barker, Throughout the course of the summer as the Booker Prize judges were engaged in the now famous process of whittling the press made much of Howard Davies' literary pedigree as a bibliophile, an avid reader and a conscientious reviewer I think perhaps they ought to have paid attention to other aspects of his career since as only readers of his blog will know how conscientious he really was in his role as chair, for it was here that his statistical thoroughness revealed itself. At 6 a.m. on the morning of the long list being announced, Sir Howard was to be found at his computer perusing the Amazon rankings to get the positions of the 13 novels that would be celebrated later that day. Precisely 24 hours, he was there again, repeating the exercise. It will come as no surprise to learn that all the contenders leapt up the rankings, but it struck me as somehow supremely fitting that the director of the LSE thought to gauge the quantitative temperature of the situation, thus providing us with a statistical snapshot of the power of literary prizes. His talk tonight is titled, Judging the Man Booker Prize, What Concerns Novelists in English Today and What Does Not. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Sir Howard Davis.
1: Thank you very much, Marina. As you you will know, the LSE is not uh, traditionally uh, strongly associated with uh, literature, uh, though uh, those who think we have nothing to do with it are wrong. We do have a course here, which a number of people take, called Literature and Society, and indeed we are uh, planning to launch uh, another one uh, on a similar theme uh, next year. And also, uh, we're delighted that this year we have Marina Benjamin funded by the uh, Royal Literary Fund as a, a literary fellow uh, in the school. And so we like to think uh, that we have some interest in the literary world, uh, but I guess it was because of my own uh, personal background and experience that I was asked to chair the judges rather than on an ex officio basis from the LSE. Modernism, uh, postmodernism, countermodernism, modernist mythopoeia, meta reality, hybridity, the ontological dominant. These are just a few of the useful theoretical constructs which will be making no appearances this evening (laughs) Uh, because I know my place. Uh, Since I hazarded a few observations on literary reviewers in my speech at the prize dinner a couple of weeks ago, I've been roundly rebuked in The Observer and by the editor of the Times Literary Supplement than whom no higher authority can be imagined uh, for straying onto territory on which amateurs, indeed readers too poor, uh, have no place. Um, I, was, uh, I was reminded just a lapsed financial regulator uh, who had no right at all to an opinion on novels, having, as one person said, never written one or published a work of literary criticism. Well, they are, of course, completely right. Though I did wonder for a moment how well it would be received if the chairman of the Financial Services Authority responded to depositors of Northern Rock by saying that since they've never regulated a bank in their lives, their views on the security of their accounts were of no interest to him. But I don't propose uh, this evening to revisit that argument at length, uh, or indeed to seek to join battle with the literary theoreticians. My aim is instead, rather straightforwardly, to explain something of the process of judging the Man Booker Prize, which I hope will be of interest to the general reader, and also to offer a few comments on the subject matter which today's novelists address, largely the political and social dimensions of their work. So perhaps unusually I shall leave literary merit aside for the most part and ask what it is that concerns today's novelists about the world around them, and indeed what does not. Literary merit was, of course, the criterion that we use for selecting our long and short lists and the winner, and I explain how we reach those decisions at the dinner. Perhaps even this political and social analysis would benefit from a theoretical framework, but frankly, I lack one. So I was encouraged to read the conclusion of a recent review of contemporary British fiction called The Novel Now by Richard Bradford, professor of English University of Ulster, rather a good book, I think. Bradford ends... Academia lags far behind the novel which is now part of a transparently public discourse. Perhaps the clogged impenetrability of literary theory will eventually disperse and enable academic critics to tackle literature on its own ground to be as amusing, as thoughtfully available and shiftlessly elegant as their subject to evaluate and assess the qualities of fiction rather than treat it as a springboard for intellectual prating. I quickly assert that intellectual prating is quite unknown at the LSE. Now, in an attempt to compensate for this theoretical vacuum, I begin by offering a couple of observations on the contemporary novel in English, especially the British version, by distinguished practitioners of the craft. In an interview to mark her very popular award of the Nobel Prize for Literature last month, Doris Lessing said, the English are best at small, circumscribed novels preferably about the nuances of social or class behaviour. They do it supremely well. This is, I guess, the version of the sort of Pride and Prejudice versus War and Peace argument uh, about the difference between uh, English and Russian novels. J.G. Ballard made a similar point a decade or so ago. A lot of English fiction, he said, is too rooted. The writers are too comfortable, on fields. They're like people returning again and again to the same restaurant. They're comfortable with the dishes on offer. This uh, has uh, an uncomfortable resonance for me because I actually am someone who has gone to the same restaurant and ordered exactly the same meal in New York half a dozen times a year for the last decade. And I don't take this as a criticism, but I do understand the point he is making. If anybody wants to know where to go to have the ideal meal in New York, I can tell you afterwards. But are these uh, observations a fair characterization of the novel in English today? Well, before attempting an answer, I should say something about the evidence base from which I am working, because if we are anything in this institution, we are analysts and we base ourselves on evidence. Now, judging the man-booker is not a perfect basis for reaching conclusions, but it does bring you into contact with a broad and indeed quite deep cross-section of fiction. I guess in the normal year, I read about 30 contemporary novels and have done so 30 years or so since I began reviewing fiction. And I've sometimes reflected on the number of languages I could have learned, or scarves I could have knitted during the time spent on this frivolous pursuit, Uh, but it's too late now. Now, As a judge, this rate of consumption has to be materially increased. And this year, which I'm told was fairly typical, uh, there were 110 entries. They came in three categories. First, the novels written by former prize winners or authors shortlisted in the last 10 years, of which there were 14. Those are the ones I describe as the automatic entries. That, of course, included uh, McEwan, included Pat Barker, Kutseya, uh, with also people like uh, Treza Azapardi, who was shortlisted a few years back. Then (coughs) there were 79 submitted by publishers, each of whom have the right to two entries. I know somebody put in only one. Uh, then the judges are entitled to call in others, either from a supplementary list submitted by publishers, or indeed because we spotted excellent reviews of a novel we were not otherwise planning to read, and we called in 17 in this way. And contrary to popular misconception, we, Charles Foden, Wendy Catering, and Stubbs and I, we read them all. And that amounted to an average length of 318 pages to just over 35,000 pages, every one of which was a joy <laughs> the judges were I should say in passing a very congenial group and those who enjoy stories of intrajudicial disputes have been disappointed this year now it's conventional in fact not to publish a full list of the submissions and I shan't do so tonight also to confuse the issue a little I will from time to time refer to books not submitted since I did go off piste on occasion I can't say what percentage of literary novels published in the year my sample size represents. That's actually quite hard to assess because in part because there is no very clear definition of what a literary novel is. In his introduction to the Granter review of the best of young British novelists a few years ago, uh, Ian Jack said the literary novel isn't an easy thing to define you know it when you see it. Well, maybe. But I expect that the judges normally review about a quarter of what would meet the Jack test. But it's probably more than most people manage, so unscientific though it may be, I do regard it as a respectable basis on which to make some tentative observations. Now, who wrote the 110 this year? Well, 73 were by UK authors, of whom 26 were women. 12 of the others uh, were women, two, of course, making 38 Uh, in total, or 35%. I was slightly surprised, I have to say, the percentages of both overseas and women novelists were not higher, uh, but that's how it turned out. As an aside, for those interested in the mode of publication, just over 20% were published first as trade paperbacks, with one as a paperback with additional material only on the web. I'm not sure I wholly recommend that as a method of publication. And the prices ranged from £6.99 to £18.99. The latter generous price was for a prominent Scottish author. Why publishers think we will be induced to buy through the powerful incentive of a penny change, I have absolutely no idea, when most hardback non-fiction is now neatly priced in round numbers. 29, as you can see, were first novels, while 81 were from repeat offenders, uh, with an average of five previous novels to be taken into consideration. An average pushed up by a few writers like Thomas Keneally, who's The Widow and Her Hero, was his 25th novel this year. Now, of course, it's much harder to categorize the subject matter on a tidy chart, but one or two things can be said. The borderlines between contemporary and historical themes are not hard and fast, but I would describe 69 of the entries as broadly contemporary. Uh, with 37 historical novels, and I've divided these into the overseas and the UK as well, and four which might perhaps best be described as futuristic. The proportions, interestingly, are roughly the same for domestic and overseas writers, and, of course, there are novels where it's quite hard to be clear. Doris Lessing's own most recent book has an historical feel to it, but could just as easily be about a dystopian future. I found the incidence of historical fiction uh, a little surprising. But Richard Bradford notes that while for much of the 20th century the historical novel's status as a vehicle for sometimes misguided idealism caused it to be treated with respectful disdain by most writers with aspirations towards serious recognition, the resurgence of the historical novel since the 1970s provides an intriguing codicil to the tensions between realism and postmodernism in mainstream fiction. Now, of course, some novels contrive to be both contemporary and historical at the same time. Nicola Barker's Dark Mans* is a fascinating expression of the tension which Bradford describes. Now, another surprise for me was the number of novels set in, or very substantially, about the Second World War. Basil Palti's famous injunction is widely ignored uh, by our novelists, and I shall say more about that phenomenon in a moment. But first, the non LSE people in the audience uh, will forgive me if I mention very briefly the school's connection with this year's prize. Because there were two entries by Pat Barker, former winner, uh, and Nairin Gareth Thomas, a less recognized author so far, who are both alumni of the school. Uh, Barker won in ninety five with The Ghost Road, one of the regeneration trilogy and returned to the First World War this year with life class about art students at the Slade suddenly plunged into the trenches. I enjoyed that greatly. And now Gareth Thomas, who curiously took an MSc here in philosophy, logic and scientific method, has written a moving story of a South Wales childhood called Luggage from Elsewhere. Neither book is obviously influenced by the school. Indeed... Pat Barker writes about the Slade, an institution which is now part of UCL, which might be thought to be rather close to the knuckle for an LSE uh, alumni. But one novel this year was partly set in the LSE. Harry Kunzru's My Revolutions is about a former member of the so-called Angry Brigade, which was the British milk-and-water version of the Bader-Meinhof gang in the early 1970s. And he was radicalised at the LSE during the student sit-ins of the 60s, when the school was closed for a time and he describes the events of the time vividly there are moments from those eight days of occupation which stand out he said, I had sex with a girl called Tricia in the toilets she wasn't anything to do with the university just one of the people who'd appeared out of the woodwork attracted by the spark of possibly flitting temporarily around our stuffy college, how times have changed early one morning uh, we broke into the administration building sorry, oh, no. yes that's right um, early one morning, we broke uh, into the administration building. We milled around in the corridor outside the director's office, built barricades of chairs and desks, and I slept for a few hours curled up with Tricia on the floor. Now, this is great fun, of course, I'm sure. But there is a follow-up which might give today's potential emulators pause for thought. A week or two after the occupation, Kunzru says, I started to itch and went to visit the doctor who gave a short speech about living in an era of moral confusion and used Latin to tell me I had craps. (laughs) This is a cautionary tale uh, for revolting students. Now, venereal disease is fortunately not a recurrent theme in the novels of 2007. Infertility and anxiety about it is far more prevalent. There is a fair amount of generally conventional sex, a lot of drugs, but not much rock and roll. However, my focus after this fact-rich, positively gradgrindian analysis is on the social and political subjects which preoccupy today's novelists. As I've already said, 14 novels this year are centrally concerned with the Second World War. Now, Bradford argues in his review that pro- many professional writers who lived through and fought in the war have offered relatively slight treatment of it in their work and that contemporary novelists face a dilemma. How can they make literary claims on territory that their immediate predecessors, who knew it intimately, have kept at a respectful distance? Well, that concern, if it was ever forceful, no longer seems to trouble current writers. The novelists of 2007 find a rich theme here to exploit, albeit largely one which... Concerns the personal dilemmas and tragedies which war throws up. Tan Tuan Eng's long listed book, The uh, Gift of Rain, centers on the tensions of a half Chinese, half English boy in Penang, in Malaysia, during the Japanese occupation. How far should he be prepared to collaborate with the occupiers to preserve some part of his family's inheritance? Peter Ho Davies, also on the long list with the Welsh girl, worries that the relationship between a Welsh girl and a prisoner of war is such a relationship fatally compromised by the conflictual background. Owen Shears, in Resistance, unlucky perhaps not to be mentioned in Dispatches this year, turns this problem on its head as he imagines the German occupation of Wales and the dilemmas of women left by their husbands to the mercies sometimes quite tender of their occupiers. Justin Cartwright in the song Before It's Sung deals with similar dilemmas in the context of the late-blooming resistance to Hitler among the well-born Prussian officer class. In all these cases, the underlying rights and wrongs of the conflict are taken as read, though Robert Edric in The Kingdom of Ashes presents a more nuanced reading of the immediate post-war occupation of Germany and challenges the ethics of the interrogation techniques adopted by the British Army. And A.N. Wilson in Winnie and Wolf addresses the morality of British blanket bombing of German cities in the later stages of the conflict, as well as many uh, other things in that very rich book. But for the most part, World War II seems to have become a kind of laboratory in which interpersonal relationships can be subjected to stress tests at high temperature. Perhaps we should be relaxed at this convenient use of historical material, but I confess I found it rather uncomfortable at times. The Second World War is not the only conflict which becomes grist to the novelist's mill, but the four First World War novels this year are very different in character. Uh, Douglas Galbraith vividly describes the bizarre peace mission financed by Henry Ford who sent a ship of peace campaigners from the US to Copenhagen to no discernible effect. Uh, Pat Barker's themes I've mentioned already. Rosalind Belbin treats the plight of farm horses sent from Dorset to the Middle East. And Jessica Gregson explores the effect on Hungarian villages of being shorn of their men by the First World War. But the more recent conflicts Present far harder challenges to writers, and I think the way they deal with them is more revealing, certainly to the social scientist. Tamina Annam's picture of life in a middle class Bengali family through the civil war and the breakup of Pakistan was an eye opener to me, at least, and would be, I guess, to most English readers. Roma Tian lifts a corner on the Sri Lankan conflict and the complex relationship between Sri Lankans and the UK. Both Joan Smith and Samir el Youssef tread where many fear to trespass and set their stories in the heart of the conflicts in the Lebanon where terrorist bands and regular armies clash by night in a fog of conflict and misunderstanding. Both of them, I think, are fascinating attempts to comprehend the motives of the principal protagonists and to explain the coping strategies adopted by those whose lives are blighted as a result. I think they are admirable attempts to bring fictional techniques to bear on contemporary issues. As is the reluctant fundamentalist by Mosin Hamid. The fundamentalism of the title is not quite as one expects. Hamid was, of course, on our short list. There is little or nothing here about Islamic fundamentalism. The word refers most directly in the book to the focus by the consulting firm for which the narrative voice changes cahangezi will call it changes worked in New York Uh, this is a firm called uh, Underwood Samson which is a gossamer thin disguise for McKinsey of which Hamid Hamid, uh, as indeed am I uh, is an alumnus and its concerns with the economic fundamentals of the companies which it analyses downsizes or closes down So it's these fundamentals, if you like, of financial analysis uh, that are the direct reference in the title, though clearly he is not uh, unaware of the implication of the title he's chosen. And Hamid's purpose is also to address the way Muslims reacted to 9-11. Changes is both horrified and excited as he sees the planes crash into the World Trade Center. Though no one has bought more fully into the American dream than he has. He is a Princeton graduate working uh, in Manhattan for a premier firm. He quickly becomes alienated by the treatment he now receives at the hands of U.S. immigration officials. And by the time the novel starts, he has become disenchanted with the human impact of the work he does and has returned to his family in Pakistan. The narrative framework of the book is explicitly borrowed from Camus' The Plague, a debt acknowledged on the dust jacket and indeed the first sentence is a direct translation of the first sentence of Camus's book and it centres on a conversation between Changes and an unnamed American in a cafe in Lahore the American says little and barely seems to be listening as Changes recounts the history of his disillusion wholly, the American the while is wholly preoccupied by a presumed threat to his safety which may or may not materialise at the end of the book As a representation of the dialogue of the deaf between the US and the Muslim world at present, this is a stunning literary device. I think Hamid's book is an outstanding example of the way fiction can, through personalisation and vivid description, illuminate current political dilemmas. The reluctant fundamentalist could happily sit on the reading list of any international relations course dealing with the post-9-11 world. Unfortunately, no British novelist has so far attempted a novel of Iraq. A couple of years ago, in Ian McEwan's Saturday, an anti-war demonstration appeared as a character, so to speak. But even that walk-on part is no longer uh, a part of the cast list. It's only a matter of time, surely, before the subject resurfaces. But in other respects, novelists are grappling with issues on the front page of the Daily Mail. And by that, I don't mean the McCanns, though Anne Enright did pen an interesting and insightful piece on the subject in the London Review of Books, which led to some completely unjustified headlines for her. I'm talking rather about immigration. Several of the most intriguing novels we read this year have wrestled with the experience of recent immigrants in the UK. They are contemporary examples of stories of Displacement, which I guess is a fairly common fictional device. Marina Levitska made a stir a couple of years back with her amusing short history of tractors in Ukrainian. And this year, two caravans mined the same scene, exploring the experiences of fruit pickers from Eastern Europe and China, variously exploited and just occasionally helped by a floating cast of dubious characters at the margins of British prisoners' life, few of whom, I imagine, are members of the CBI. Now, having never picked strawberries by the hour in Kent uh, or engaged in hand-to-hand combat with battery chickens, which is the most vivid scene in the book, I can't precisely vouch for her realism, uh, but she paints a vivid and credible picture of the mainly miserable experience of those on whom our economic miracle and our high house prices are based. Rose Tremaine performs a similar service, using the story of a single pole, I say pole, it's probably a pole, but it actually isn't ever made quite explicit in the book, trying to make money to support his family back home. Tremaine tells us more about the motivation for migration, Levitska more about the reception migrants receive here. Nikita Lalwani, one of the uh, two first novelists on our long list, uh, picks a more complex theme but nonetheless related centrally to the immigrant experience in the UK. And she treats the intergenerational relationships between members of a family of Indian immigrants actually based in Cardiff. The central character is a Ruth Lawrence-type mathematical prodigy, pushed on relentlessly by her excessively ambitious father and finding herself admitted to Oxford at just 15 Now, I won't destroy your enjoyment, I hope, by saying this does not turn out to be a successful admission decision by the university. Not the sort of mistake we would make, of course. Uh, But the most fascinating parts of the book for me are the contrasting attitudes to integration of the girl, her father, who's a university lecturer, and her mother, who works in a call centre. And we also visit her relations back home, whose attitudes are different again. The tensions it describes are wholly credible, and must be replicated in many South Asian families across the UK. Sid Smith's China Dreams is the only book in the 110 which deals centrally with China, albeit a dreamlike dreamlike imagined version of China. And even Smith, who's written three novels on this theme, has, as far as I know, never been there, at least the... uh, cover of the previous book says he's never been to China. He tells him this of a floating, homeless, unloved and often unwashed Englishman uh, who falls in love with the daughter of the owner of a Chinese takeaway and works as a delivery boy for them. If any of you who uh, recall the takeaway family in Timothy Moe's Sour Sweet whose grandmother squats memorably under a staircase at Heathrow waiting to be rescued, this is a poignant development. 25 years ago who could imagine an English delivery boy for Mr. Lee Ho-Fook? That does not seem so unlikely today. One of the central characters in Nicola Barker's shortlisted Dark Mans is a very memorable Kurdish immigrant called Gafar, with a morbid fear of salad. Uh, but I'll say more about Dark Mans uh, later. So these novels of the immigrant experience, which clearly is a central concern of quite a number of novelists writing in English today, and one which I think is quite understandable, and I think very illuminating, overlaps with a third group, which I will call the novels of New Europe. Now, it may have taken a while, uh, but the Berlin Wall has now definitely fallen for our literati. One very encouraging feature of British fiction today is that the former Eastern European countries, and indeed Russia, are now treated as full members of our continental community, if you can put it that way. It may be that the British people still have mixed feelings about this development, and some may wish to drop off the western edge of the European Union as its frontiers move east. But Norman Davis's well-known assertion that the centre of Europe is geographically somewhere in eastern Poland, that begins to seem more real each day. I've talked a bit about the treatment of Polish and Ukrainian immigrant experience in the UK, but there are other aspects of this new Europe which are interesting. Tom McCarthy, a very talented new writer, sets his exciting existential thriller, Men in Space, in the Czech Republic. Edward Dox, a long-listed author with self-help, describes the complex story of an Anglo-Russian family across the generations, and his St. Petersburg is as credible as is his North London. James Hopkins takes us to a rather gloomy Poland, uh, which helps explain why so many Poles have moved here. Adam Thorpe sets the first part of Between Each Breath in a rather more racy Estonia, as the composer-narrator pays homage there to Arvo Pett and has an exciting affair with a waitress to boot turns out to be more fun being a minimalist composer than you might think, until the waitress rather conventionally gets pregnant. But there aren't that many original stories in the imaginative world, after all. Europe is now one continent again, and the 2007 Man Booker Prize entries prove it. Now, at the LSE, we are focusing more and more attention on cities and their management more than half the world's population now live in cities. And it's arguably in those cities that the sharpest problems societies face today are hammered out. Migration creates more strains in the city than elsewhere. Pache Levitska's, Strawberry Army. Environmental issues present themselves in cities in their least tractable form. Education, transport and planning are very difficult to manage. I returned uh, on Sunday from Mumbai where we mounted a conference there under a banner that we call the Urban Age to look at how that city is facing these challenges following similar events in London, Johannesburg Shanghai and elsewhere and this year's crop of novels are rich in representations of city life in his recent survey of the contemporary British novel Philip Tew of the University of Central England presents an interesting analysis of urban identities in the modern novel Contemporary fiction, he says, returns often to the city and urban social practice and spatial realities variously as a location, subject matter, a cultural source for energy and as a symbol of change. And that was certainly true this year. Now, some may think, looking at my number one on this list, that Ashford does not figure on any list of the world's great cities. Um, And that may be so. But Nicola Barker's astonishing fictions are novels of the entire Thames Gateway, an elastic concept dreamt up by Michael Heseltine, as I recall it, uh, to describe those parts of the Greater London Southeast Conurbation in which no one in their right mind would want to live. <laughs> Luckily, no character in Darkman's Mans is in their right mind. Uh, they occupy a haunted landscape, both internal and external, in which ghosts of the past regularly intrude on the present. But at the same time, Barker has a strong feel for the new patterns of human interaction created in these urban fringes in which successive waves of immigrants attempt to coexist as comfortably as they can. And fascinatingly, from this this picture of Ashford, the great wealth machine of the City of London, which is on their doorstep, could be on another planet. There is no visible trickle-down effect in Ashford uh, from the presence of the City of London. Catherine O'Flynn, on the shortlist with her first novel, What Was Lost, illuminates another corner of British life hidden to most of us, behind the scenes at a shopping mall. If ever ever you've wondered what happens in the delivery bays and the service corridors of -of out-of-town shopping malls, this is the book for you. Uh, I will never look the shopping centre in the same way again. Indra Sinha's Animals, People of course one of our shortlisted choices is a novel of Bhopal or Kauphkur as Sinha describes it in the book. And the novel derives from his campaigning work on behalf of the victims of the explosion at the Union Carbide plant in Bhopal. But it is a powerful imaginative creation in its own right. And he has rather intriguingly created a new parallel city on an accompanying website which has photographs of Kavpur, which has lists of members of the city council of Kavpur, including their telephone numbers. It has the a newspaper of the city of Kavpur uh, and all sorts of other sort of collateral information, if you like. And in that website and in the book, Kavpur uh, comes vividly alive. And elsewhere in India, Sujit Saras' The Peacock Throne presents a compelling portrait of a corner of Delhi across three decades of communal disturbance. And Michael Redhill's Consolation is a historical novel of Toronto, and also was on our long list. A historical novel of Toronto doesn't sound great, indeed, perhaps makes it sound far less appealing than it is. In fact, it explores a theme quite close to that of Nicola Barker, albeit in a far more conventional style. How do we sustain collective memory of a city's past and yet respond to the development needs of the current generation? What is the value of that collective memory to current inhabitants of the city? Collective memory which builds up like layers of sediment in a lake. And Redhill explores that theme through a double story of English immigrants to Toronto in the middle of the 19th century and a present-day professor who is convinced that a set of photographs of the 19th century city exists under the foundations of a proposed new sports table. His novel, I think, offers a double benefit to the English reader. You can relive the past and present of Toronto without actually needing to go there at all. This strikes me as a winning formula. Now, these are all areas in which novelists are wrestling with themes which interest social sciences and where, quite apart from their literary merit, the books I briefly described have something important to say and there are others of course I could have included in this brief survey I don't have time to explore them tonight but just as Sherlock Holmes is most concerned about the dogs that do not bark it's also interesting to ask I think what novelists are not writing about and it's quite a significant list British politics are of remarkably little interest to novelists today Now, Philip Chew, in his uh, book about the contemporary novel, chronicles the effects of Thatcherism on the British novel. Bradford, similarly, says that her impact on the direction of British fiction has been immense. The vast majority of modern writers, he says, at least until they reach grouchy middle age, tend to gather across a spectrum from the charitably inclined political middle ground to the radical left. Novelists from McEwan to Jonathan Coe produced dyspeptic and dystopian visions of a landscape disfigured by a heartless government which denied the existence of society. Well, the heat has gone out of them now. McEwan has returned highly successfully to the microscope of interpersonal relationships. Jonathan Coe's The Rain Before It Falls, published this year, is as far from the Rotter's Club or a Carve-Up as can be imagined. It's an elegiac piece narrated by a dying woman reflecting on her family's life over three generations through describing a series of photographs. No political satire in view. For the moment, politics are in fictional abeyance. Perhaps Blair's combination of blokishness and blitzkrieg uh, is too difficult and perplexing for writers to address. Brown has not been Prime Minister long enough to attract hostility, which seems the most reliable wellspring of novelistic inspiration. Though I have great hopes for him in this area. <laughs> <laughs> the Tories, sadly, now seem too nice. That may or may not be true. And though the Liberal Democrats provide enough stabs in the back to keep thick crime fiction writers in material, uh, they don't interest the literary fraternity at all. Campus novels, too, are off the agenda. This year there were no searing tales of professional indiscretions with young students like Disgrace. The campus novel of course has always been much less common here than in the US and maybe, Marina, in universities we should be worried about that in that being created by novelists is some proof of one's existence uh, and importance. But China certainly exists and is the dominant preoccupation at the moment of our politicians and our business people. So far, with the honourable exception of Sid Smith, novelists simply do not care about it. I believe one day they will. Nor, indeed, are they much concerned by business. Characters in British novels do not seem to work much, and they certainly don't work in major companies or in city institutions. I drew attention to this gap in the Financial Times in August, asking rhetorically where the great hedge fund novel could be found. (laughs) I have since been inundated by novels of the world of finance with titles like Naked Option or My Word is My Bonus. Uh, Literally, I have that on my desk. All of these books, sadly, have been privately published. Elsewhere in the English-speaking world, that is not the case. Sinha's book is on one level about corporate social responsibility. Hamid understands American capitalism very well and explores its interface with culture and the lives of ordinary people. Lloyd-Jones, on the shortlist with Mr. Pip, deals with the aftermath of a failed colonial industrial enterprise in Bougainville, an island in Papua New Guinea. British authors seem less confident of this territory than them, and certainly less confident than American writers like Tom Wolfe or Richard Ford. I find that regrettable, but there it is. Writers of fiction can hold up a valuable mirror to the business world, as Robert Brewer points out in his book The Fictions of Business. If you want to know now, this is a serious recommendation, why the financial markets are falling about our ears, then go to Shaftesbury Avenue and watch David Mamet's Glengarry Gary Glen Ross. Although it's 20 years old, it tells you all you need to know about the origins of the subprime market crisis. It's about a group of real estate brokers or estate agents as we would call them in the US selling squares of swampland in Florida uh, to feckless people they bump into in bars and Chinese restaurants. That is basically what the US mortgage market is like and that's why Northern Rock and other banks are in trouble. But finally, after listing what novelists are interested in and what they seem not to be interested in, let me just say a few words about the impact of prizes uh, and specifically the Man Booker Prize on uh, the business of fiction. Now, there's been some commentary on the impact of the shortlist and indeed uh, the winner on sales. Jordan's recent novel, whose name escapes me, uh, has apparently outsold all the shortlists combined apart from on Chesil Beach. Well, is that phenomenon new? Well, I think not Is it nonetheless a condemnation of the prize? Well, not precisely, but I think there is a point there we might reflect on. In a very interesting book a couple of years ago, which I came to review at the time, called The Economy of Prestige, James English, who is a professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania, charts the relationship between literary merit, as expressed by the major literary prizes, I know that's not a perfect correlation and so does he, but he plots this relationship and sales figures. And he points out that up to the 1960s, most winners of the Pulitzer Prize for fiction um, in the US also featured prominently on the New York Times bestsellers. So that up the side you have the percentage of the winners of these prizes uh, that appeared in the top ten of the New York Times bestsellers. And you can see that in the 20s and 30s, half of Pulitzer Prize winners were also top ten New York Times bestsellers, uh, whereas in the 80s and 90s, uh, almost none. I mean, three, two or three percent uh, have also been uh, bestsellers, and the National Book Award he plots as well. It's not hugely, it's not hugely different. So since uh, the 1960s, almost no novels selected for the nearest US equivalent to the Booker have actually been bestsellers at all, and those lists are now dominated by blockbusters of one sort or another, or, I guess, uh, genre novels of different kinds. But why is this? English argues that this is somehow inherent in the way the awards industry, as he dubs it, has evolved. Firstly, there's been a confusing inflation in the number of prizes on offer, a phenomenon which mutes the impact of any particular award. And this is particularly notable in the film industry. And this book, The Economy of Prestige, is actually about both the film industry and the literary industry, and both in the US and in the UK. And what's happened in the film industry um, is this, uh, in terms of the number of film awards per thousand films produced worldwide. So that we're now in a position where there are almost 2,000 awards for every thousand films produced. Um, Now, um, some of these are rather specialised. The award for best anal sex scene is not one uh, that that many films compete for, but uh, quite a few. Um, But if you're... Whatever you're choosing to go and see this weekend, if it hasn't won two awards, it's a turkey. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, The consequence is that Casablanca, for example... Uh, which was released uh, just over 60 years ago, has, during that 60 years, won three awards, one of which is a kind of lifetime achievement award of some sort, while Lord of the Rings Part Three has so far racked up 79 awards. The same phenomenon is apparent in the literary world in the US, uh, though the numbers are less absurd. There are now, however a hundred awards in the United States for each thousand titles published and as you can see that number is rising very sharply in the UK we're still down in the low 20s but just as in foreign policy we trail along dismally behind the US I'm sure we'll catch up uh, in time secondly uh, English maintains the prizes have supported a more and more distinct hierarchy of symbolic value And in advancing its own interest, the awards industry has helped to (coughs) shape a scale of value ever further removed from the scale of bestsellerdom. The self-conscious pursuit of the literary novel, which he and Jack knows when he sees it, has driven prize winners away from a broader readership. Well, that's his argument about the US. Is it valid as it relates to the Man Booker Prize today? Well, certainly the promoters work hard to generate interest and sales through their links with publishers, bookstores and the media. And the judges this year were not ashamed, I think, of regarding readability as one of the criteria they should take into account. As W. H. Auden once said, and I paraphrase, all methods of judging the worth of a novel are open to question, but enjoyment is the least fallible of all. So this brings me back to where I began. Whenever we judges this year hinted at that aspect of our judgments, we were roundly criticised. What has readability got to do with it, the critics argued. Literary merit, you know it when you see it, is all. And when I suggested at the awards dinner that some critics of the output of elevated novelists had omitted to point out that the books in question were very hard-going indeed, or perhaps structurally flawed, there were cries of outrage. In The Observer, Jason Cowley, whose novels I've rather enjoyed in the past, said he didn't exactly disagree with me about reviewers but that as a financial bureaucrat I'd no right to make the point Uh, and that I should have focused instead on decrying the poor efforts of bookstores to market literary novels. This argument in my view is precisely upside down. It is exactly the attitude which fences off prize novels from the reading public and which denies that public the ability to pass judgment on them which alienates a broad readership. We want more of your money but we don't give a fig for your views of what we write, is the transparent message. It's not persuasive. But I'm not quite as pessimistic as Professor English. I think it is possible to generate excitement about works of high literary merit and to see them widely read. I also think that Booker trustees are right to ensure that each year the judges do reflect a balance between professionals and amateurs, so to speak. Novels are too important to be left to literary critics alone. I've tried to explain this evening how they can speak to those of us with quite other preoccupations in our daily lives. This year's winner of the Gathering is certainly a novel which deserves a wide readership, and over time we'll get it. It is not a political novel, and I doubt if it will find its way onto the curriculum here. It's a novel of family life. It may even be described as, to use Lessing's term, circumscribed. Enright is not English, of course. Uh, So, immune from the Lessing Ballard critique in any event. But in spite of our choice of winner, I hope I've persuaded you this evening that there is a huge amount to interest social scientists in this year's crop of novels in English, even though none of them will help Gordon Brown or David Cameron win the next election. Thank you.
0: Um, I think there's going to be some time for for there to be questions from the floor Um, I I would like to thank um, Sir Howard for um, delivering such a fascinating talk this evening Um, It it struck me that all of the interest and commitment and high energy and excitement that you felt about these novels really very much came across and I, for one, have noted at least three novels I'm going to buy this weekend.
1: Only three? Uh, <laughs> failed, I
0: failed. <laughs> I think you've single-handedly <laughs> raised book sales this, e- this evening's talk. Um, if, I, if I may permit myself um, the, uh, the opportunity to kick off the, the questions this evening, um, I was very interested to pick up a note of disappointment that you felt with uh, um, in noting that... Um, the the use of historical material was often convenient, I think you described, convenient use as a means of stress-testing relationships. Um, Did you feel that there was a sense of missed opportunity here that perhaps novelists ought to be raking over the legacy of the 20th century? That's one half of my question, Uh, to make more profound um, comments on it. Um, The other half of the question has to do with... um, the, the paucity, again, the point you pointed out, the paucity of novels that were um, overtly engaged with issues that would fall broadly under the category of social sciences. I wondered if you would comment on those two things.
1: Yes, I think the, the point I was making about the Second World War was uh, a little bit that. I did feel with some of them, not by any means all of the novels in that category, that they were um, adopting it as, as quite a convenient... Framework in which to explore particular tensions of loyalty, etc. And that perhaps they weren't all that interested in the events, if you like, and it was a sort of convenient peg. And I was, I was struck by uh, Richard Bradford's uh, comment that for quite a long time, novelists stayed clear of this because it was too painful and too difficult. And in some senses, I think it remains rather painful and rather difficult. And therefore, I was just felt slightly uncomfortable about some of the uh, utilisation of, of that um, as for the uh, disappointment on, on uh, not um, matters of concerned social sciences well I guess I would be a bit more nuanced than that and say I was comprehensively disappointed I don't think that was true at all and indeed I think myself uh, that the fact that novelists in English at the moment are not very interested in British politics is actually more a comment on the lack of interest in British politics than it is on the lack of engagement by novelists. It's actually a little bit difficult to know what you should get excited about. So mm-hmm. I, I, I think I would regard that as kind of interesting, but it tells you more about politics than it does about uh, the novel. Um, I do take the slightly different view about, uh, about business life in general. I don't want to sort of bang on endlessly about this point. But, you know, the... The big and interesting development in this country has been the, the growth of the private sector of the economy, the extraordinary dispersion of wealth uh, in this country, which is you know, quite dramatically changed uh, over the last three decades, uh, the extraordinary phenomenon of the City of London coexisting uh, with... Uh, a lot of social deprivation on its borders, Uh, the remarkable sort of internationalization of that uh, business community, the way in which business people have been brought into managing the public sector, the sort of complex overlap between uh, business and public policy. And there's none of that. You can't find, as far as I could see, anybody really... Wrestling with the implications of that, and I can't help thinking that there are potentially some very sharp novels to be written mm-hmm. in that area. And I do think, if you if you think about the bonfire of the vanities uh, of uh, Tom Wolfe and that, what that did in terms of putting up a mirror to Wall Street, I can't say it changed their behaviour a great deal, but it did make them feel bad about it for a while, which was, you know, quite a good thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Richard Ford. Uh, his latest novel, The Lay of the Land uh, again, curiously, about estate agents um, you know, it are remarkably uh, literary and very complex novels but nonetheless set in, in interesting uh, business environments and I think we do miss that and I do regret that
0: um, Can I open it out to questions from the floor, pl- floor please um, I think there's somebody with a microphone there. There there is a question at the back and then there's one in the front.
2: I agree wholeheartedly with the issue about fiction, but in England at the moment, non-fiction writers like Ian Sinclair are addressing those very issues about why there's no trickle down to Ashford from the city of London. Um, And likewise in our theatres, we've reinvented a new genre, the documentary play. David Hare's analysis of Britain's role in Iraq is a very, very powerful documentary play. So, could you perhaps comment on why not in novels but in other forms of literary representation where we we are getting that message coming
1: through? Yeah, I think that's an extremely good point. I'm not sure I can answer quite why it is. Um, But I do think that the uh, way in which Uh, the Tricycle Theatre in particular um, has developed that I went to see that uh, the novel about the legality of uh, the play about the illegality of the Iraq war uh, recently uh, partly because one of the characters Richard Pearl, the prince of darkness in the US the sort of ultimate neocon um, uh, uh, went along to the opening night with me because he is an LSE alumnus rather bizarrely Um, but um, yeah I think that that way in which theatre has edged into that territory is extremely interesting and it it does seem that there there isn't a kind of uh, equivalent dimension in in the novel I'm I'm not sure I can answer why it is uh, because I think that, sorry you, you have an answer give it me Oh, no, what I've seen is... Uh, no, I mean, the tricycle is not a national theatre. It's entirely dependent on, uh, uh, on you know, it, its existence. I mean, it gets very little support from, from anybody. I don't think that the... Tri- no, I think the Tricycle rather invalidates your point. I mean, they have developed that, and Stratford East did this kind of thing as well without much support. I don't think it's just a national theatre phenomenon, actually. I'm not sure that, quite, that, w- that will quite do as an answer. But I don't know what the answer is, I have to say. Yeah, um... Two things sort of interest me when I was reading about the the judging process and the whole Booker Prize um, lead-up. And one was about the sort of system um, you came up with to try and make the the sort of judging and voting fair. And one of the criteria you mentioned in your talk was readability. So the first thing I wanted to ask was what were the other criteria? Uh, And the second thing I I thought was funny was this sort of mini spat you had with Jeanette Jeanette Winterson on on speed reading and how many pages you should or shouldn't read in an hour. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, let me um, deal with both of those. Uh, the, the, um, as I think, as I explained, we were a, uh, it was a very congenial group, um, but that's not to say that it was a consensual group. No, we had um, quite a highly diverse views about uh, the books, and so it was necessary to devise ways in which we could uh, somehow find a way of understanding why we were taking rather different views on the uh, novels on the long list and on the short list. And so when we came to the final uh, decision, we did seek loosely, but nonetheless uh, with uh, consciously, to structure our observations about the books around a number of different criteria. So, I mean, they were not... Uh, anything uh, that would be regarded as uh, leading edge in theoretical terms. But we did uh, talk about structure, and there are novels which may appeal to you to start with, but when you've read them three times in a couple of months, the structure starts to come apart in your hands a little bit, and you realize they're not as tight. So we talked about structure. Uh, We talked about uh, the uh, credibility of the characters, if you like. And sometimes, again, when you read a novel in some depth you start to find internal incoherence if you like in in characters and so we were were concerned about that Uh, we debated the uh, themes that the novel was addressing and whether they were addressed in a way that we felt comfortable with that we felt was appropriately balanced um, in terms of the expression and we also uh, talked simply about the quality of the writing uh, because we regarded that uh, I think we all felt on the panel that we were not prepared to give the prize to a book that was poorly written because that seemed to us to be an important element particularly for something like the Man Booker Prize so we did discuss all of those dimensions of our judgments but nonetheless we also included in that you know, a more of a sort of X factor of just how did in the end how did persuasively did this come across to you how excited were you by it, did you, when you picked it up to read for the third time, and which is an unusual test of course for novels, not many people do read contemporary novels three times on the run that, um, you know, when you picked it up for the third time, did you pick it up with a heavy heart um, or did you really feel you were still being inspired by this book? So we did find that when we then came to make the decision about uh, the, um, the final winner that we had some, objective is always a difficult word, but we had some quasi-objective judgments that we could look back to in uh, in deciding the one we we eventually favoured. So that was the way we did it, and then on the top of that, we had a sort of uh, a few voting systems um, which uh, sort of amused us more than really convinced us, but where we had a weighted system whereby your top choice got more... Votes than your lower ones, and then we tried to validate that by saying, "Well, what if we hadn't used the voting structure, and what if we'd used a kind of single transferable vote scheme and dropped off the bottom one?" And, and um, luckily, they all came up with the same answer uh, in the end. And so uh, that was how we how we got there. Um, the yeah, the Jeanette Winston thing that was a, a kind of peculiar, really, because um, uh, the she was interviewed um, in the Guardian and. Um, was asked uh, whether she was um, disappointed not to be on the long list or the, or the short list. I don't which one, which one it was, um, and, and it struck me as rather odd because, as far as I know, the, com- the convention in the, in the world of uh, fiction, which seems to me to be followed by absolutely everybody else, is to say, "Oh, good gracious me! I never thought of whether I was in consideration at all," and there are some wonderful books. You know, no one ever answers that question. And she then uh, said she didn't care at all because she didn't want to be judged by some bloody idiot, uh, i.e. me, um, uh, who read the books too fast. And I was slightly bustled by that. And then it turned out that in an interview with um, Mariella Frostrup on one of these uh, BBC Radio 4 programs, which I'd sort of quite forgotten about, really, um, she sort of said, well, gosh, how do you find the time and how fast do you read? And I sort of said just en passant that I thought I probably did read these things as about... Uh, 80 pages an hour now it turns out uh, that um, in the case of the most books because I then was subsequently accused of speed reading now my understanding of speed reading which I've been trained in as a matter of fact in the past which I don't use for reading fiction simply wasted a lot of time to use it reading, reading fiction because that's not what you're reading fiction for but I can read stuff about financial regulation real fast I can tell you um, laughter is is that speed reading normally is a 1,000 words a minute or more. That's how they define. That's what they teach you to do. Um, And when I looked at a sample of novels, if you're reading 80 pages an hour, on average you're reading uh, 400 words a minute, which is actually um, the the normal people's range is sort of two to 300 words a minute. Um, But I am a quick reader. I would certainly accept that I was a quick reader. But if you actually work that out further, you get, you're going to get more statistics in this answer than you think uh, you probably want. But um, if you talk about 35,000 pages and then you, then you discuss, uh, you look at the length of time you have to read them, that involves, that's basically for the period of the reading, if you can do it at 80 pages an hour, it's about 450 hours and about 25 hours a week that you've got in the, in the reading period of the thing. Now, in my view... Uh, unless you have Booker Prize judges which are com- who are completely full-time on the task. But if you're doing anything else, um, you know, to do more than that I think is not really plausible. And frankly, I'd be astonished if many other judges had actually read really that much slower than I had read. The total process in terms of hours was about 630 hours um, if you add up the meetings and everything else. And I think that's you know, a, a pretty large commitment. So I'm completely unrepentant about this. Um, I think that uh, I could read them perfectly, uh, adequately. Uh, And so uh, I'm afraid I responded rather sharply uh, to uh, Ms. Winterson. Uh, I don't know quite why she started this argument, but if she wants to carry on with it, you know, I'm up there. I'm up for it.
0: Are there any other questions? Just behind the pillar on the fact that um, a large percentage of um, fiction material is is drawn from real life um, what impact has the non-fiction book had on the list
1: the non-fiction book Um, well, I, I suppose um, that uh, that two—I don't think anyone could really say that uh, Dartman's was very close to real life. Um, but um, the, the, there were there were three of the novels. I mean, Mr. Pip um, is set in a very in a very realistic framework, and we, we thought quite hard about how realistic that framework was. Um, and, but probably the one, I guess, where that question arose in discussion was in relation to animals, people, because the, clearly his experience that lies behind that book arises from the Bhopal disaster, and the author, Indra Sinha, has for some years um, been a campaigner uh, in favour of the rights of the people who uh, are continue to suffer from diseases and uh, as a ri- arising from that disaster. Um, and indeed he seemed to, he gave up a career as an advertising copywriter to devote himself to this campaign. So I suppose in that case we did ask ourselves, but we answered the question quite quickly, we asked ourselves, well, you know, what is, is this really a, a, f- a proper imaginative creation that you can be comfortable with as a novel in its own right uh, or is it a sort of campaigning tract if you like but I think we were all satisfied that it was very well constructed in a way that meant that you could read it entirely satisfactorily and be persuaded by it you know, even if you didn't know anything about the history of Bhopal and I guess those of us on the judging panel knew more or less about the history of Bhopal but we were comfortable that it survived, well, more than survived, it prospered as a literary creation without just being a kind of loosely fictional representation of some real event. So I guess that was the one where that issue uh, arose, but we were comfortable with it.
0: Any questions on this side of the room? Just uh, two in the middle. One at the back, one in the middle, sorry.
3: Hello. I'm
0: from Toronto. Oh, (laughs) dear. I have to say it. But I'll forgive you.
1: No. I think the answer to that part, that, that direct question, I think the answer is no. I'm sure we never, uh, yes, there is one other judge here who nods, a confirmatory nod at this point. We never discussed that. I think uh, I am aware that, it, that its impact is quite great in other parts of the world, and interestingly, not just in the parts of the world from which the writers are eligible. I mean, it's, it's fascinating, for example, that the book that I quoted about, Prizes by this man in Pennsylvania, um, you know, talks about the Man Booker Prize and the Pulitzer Prizes. I mean, and and clearly that's part of his analytical framework, and indeed you will see it advertised in um, US bookstores as well. I suspect that it depends a little bit on the place. I mean, in India, the prize has a very high profile, partly because, of course, it has been won by one or two Indian authors uh, recently, and undoubtedly. Uh, in uh, places like um, Malaysia and Singapore when there was an, an author on the long list that attracted quite a lot of attention I mean one knew that because I was asked to write an article for the Straits Times about it You know, that kind of I mean there, there was a very immediate uh, reaction to it um, if you go to bookstores in places like Singapore you'll see the prize well displayed uh, there so yes it, I think it does have quite a high profile in other countries of course it depends a little bit on how well developed their own prize is in Canada I think the prize has got quite a high profile partly because of the um, well the Canadian authors have run it of course uh, but also uh, the Man Booker Prize sort of the the lifetime prize was actually determined in Canada this time wasn't it they took the committee there to actually decide on it there so yes I think we were aware of that but it it wasn't a consideration in the decision making that Yeah, I think, we, I think we are, we were conscious of that because we were, um, well, you, when, when you read them as I showed in my analysis of where the, where the books came from you know, they're, about 40% of them come from outside the, the UK and that's, that it does make it a richer experience than it would otherwise have been and of the short list, I suppose, three, well, three were non-UK is that right? Yeah, three
0: there's one at the back and then there's one um, oh there's three in, on this side but there's one behind you who's so had a hand up behind the pillar again.
1: Yeah go there it's behind the So Howard why do you think futuristic novels are so few in number in the Booker Prize? Does the genre just attract bad writers or is there something about the um, futuristic novel or even say science fiction that makes it unsuitable for a literary award? That's an interesting question. Um, I think that I, I would just observe as a fact that no novel that you would immediately recognize as a sci-fi genre novel was submitted to the prize. Um, I think that those uh, novelists... I mean, there were a couple of crime fictions submitted this year, actually, who were, you know, central crime fiction, but I think that was unusual... Uh, And there were no novels that you would think of as a sci-fi novel submitted to the prize. So they clearly, publishers clearly see those as being going into a different sort of category and competing for different awards, I guess. Um, But there were some novels of a literary kind that were set in, I think it's, and why are there fewer of them? Well, the sample size this year is not great, and I guess the genre doesn't appeal to me hugely, so I probably haven't written that many of them. They're damned hard to write, I think. Um, you know, it's quite difficult to create a sustained imaginative world if of a literary kind set in, in in the future. I think it, you know, people do struggle with it quite a lot. I mean, there were some. I think which, well, Jim Crace had one this year, uh, which was pretty interesting, pretty good, rather like um, oh, what's it? What was it? The Pest the House. Pest House. Pesthouse, yeah very similar actually curiously enough two books written very much at the same time by, one by Cormac McCarthy the road and Jim in the states and Jim Crace Pest House here which is a very very similar book remarkably similar book set in a kind of post catastrophe united states really um, and um, you know you're not it's not clear what precisely the catastrophe has been but it's been very nasty and there aren't many people left um, and um, th- th- those worked, I think, in different ways. But it's very hard to sustain a completely credible futuristic world in the framework of a literary novel. I, I just observed that. I couldn't say I was an expert on it. I think, I mean,
3: the thing is, science fiction by sort proper
2: genre of science fiction might No.
1: Yeah, so that's Wendy Cape, my uh, fellow judge. <laughs> um,
0: there's a question there?
2: Yeah, um, I was quite interested in your graph about um, with the Pulitzer Prize and bestseller and, and all that and the position changing from the 1960s. And I I wonder whether it's got anything to do with what you might call professionalisation of of the book world, whether, um, well, for a start, there's the the patronage of prizes themselves perhaps injects a a different... um, makes the book world a bit more like the fine art world, where, you know, taste is dependent on the great and good, perhaps, or on institutions and not just people in the market. And, And whether you know, the growth of higher education on the media, maybe, has had something to do with it. So, you know, more people who actually have paid jobs that depend on, on work, on, on, on books and making judgments about them. Just, just wonder what your thoughts are about the economics of that. Yeah. Like.
1: Well, they're interesting thoughts. I mean, I find it's quite um, difficult to know and um, what uh, I have found quite interesting um, is how uninterested uh, the literary world seems to be in it, um, in that you know, the, the comments that uh, I have read have just sort of moaned about the fact that these novels are not read as much as others, and have somehow blamed the bookstores. Well, this seems to be, to be an implausible argument, really. Uh, I, don't think it can, I don't think Waterstones can, you know, every ill in life can be put at their door. I know hold no particular brief for them, but. Um, I think it's sort of unlikely really so I think that there's some interesting work to be done on it I have only found one piece of uh, analysis and that's the one I've quoted from uh, this book The Economy of Prestige where he argues that it it is something to do with the way in which prizes have in his view sort of turned in on themselves to some degree and created their own hierarchy of esteem which has become remote from the reading public. Now, that's his assertion, if you like. Well, that's, I mean, it's an interesting book. If you're interested in this subject, I really would recommend that you have a look at it. Um, and that strikes me as being plausible. I mean, perfectly plausible hypothesis. I think there are one or two others that you that may be true, in that I think it may well be that, if you like, the the publishing industry, let's call it that, has become more sophisticated in um, analyzing and breaking down its market. You know, that just in the way that other uh, fast-moving consumer goods companies have become extremely sophisticated at identifying target markets and market segments and feeding those segments with exactly the sort of product that they like. You know, and we're all conscious of that in lots of different Uh, areas of life it may well be that the literary world in some way has actually got better at that and I think that might be part of it you know that there are sort of rather targeted genres of things which many of us would find rather baffling you know I mean I have occasionally you know one picks up a Mills and Boone in in a lavatory somewhere and I mean I find it unbelievable but nonetheless they know their market they certainly do. And, you know, if that's the sort of thing you like, you really like that sort of thing. And, you know, there, there are very, very targeted um, types of market. You know, there are all those um, uh, books by people like David Garnett and stuff. They're sort of fantasy, sort of gothic fantasies, you know? And there are real sub genres around the place which are very, very focused on particular types of marketplace. And I think that maybe. You know, that, that that's part of the answer as well. Uh, but I think probably there is something in the English um, hypothesis. And I was struck when I read that and then when we, as I said, made some extremely kind of tentative observations about readability being something we were interested in, the kind of uh, pushback you got from certain sort of literary editors who we were absolutely horrified by this notion and I started to think to myself, you know, maybe there's more in this thesis um, than I'd originally thought. And so I do think, it, it, you know, there's something going for it, actually. But it would be interesting to do more work on it, really. Not me, perhaps. But.
0: Perhaps there's time for maybe two more questions. Um, there's a, a lady there who's had her hand up. Um, hi. Um, I'm currently writing a book, and I was just wondering if agents are necessary... And what do they actually do? (laughs)
1: Um, Well, I don't know. I might even ask Wendy to answer that. I think probably they are still rather.
0: Question in the middle here. I think this is the last question
3: actually. Good evening, sir. Um, I was wondering where this perception comes from, but when you talk to people on the streets uh, about prizes in literature and cinema, uh, they tend to say that uh, when it comes to awarding prizes, uh, the jury would at times tend to overlook criteria such as say readability or literary content and would exhibit a very strong bias in favor of pieces of work coming from the difficult regions of the world or maybe from the socially disempowered sections like for example if if a woman if a lady in bangladesh writes about women's issues that book would straight away start off um, as a favorite for the booker prize and i wonder where this perception comes from um, is there really a place for things like courage and a conviction when it comes to awarding prizes?
1: Well, I hope so. I mean, I, I think that would be um, probably rather uh, unfair to um, past judges. Um, I, I mean, as it happens, as I mentioned, there was one uh, novel written by a woman from Bangladesh, um, not specifically about women's issues, although to some extent, actually. Uh, which uh, which we we thought was rather good. But I I think we thought it was rather good because it was rather good, not because of of who the the author was. So I doubt if a group of Booker judges would really implement such a a set of prejudices, actually, when they came to the the decisions. I think one advantage of uh, of having five judges, usually from rather different backgrounds and not uh, necessarily knowing each other well. I mean, we barely knew each other really when we started this uh, process. Um, And that I think that that pushes you into taking views on the novel which can be explained within the context of the novel. It may be that if you had one Uh, Panel, as some prizes do. I mean, some of the French prizes have a jury which goes on forever. Um, And I sometimes suspect that they do think, well, it's about time we awarded a novel to this kind of book or that kind of book. And maybe that would create the certain elements of the bias you're talking about. I think that's much harder in the way the Booker Prize is structured, in that you have judges different judges every year. I think in the 39 years of the prize's existence, only a couple of people have judged it twice and nobody's ever been chairman twice. Uh, So uh, you get the benefit of that, I think, is that you do get as objective a kind of analysis of that set of books with little hinterland or little sort of background prejudice or context, if you like. That's a plus Obviously, the minus is that, you know, you may just get different judgments made in, in, in each year because you haven't got a kind of, you know, you can get sets of judges that adopt different sorts of criteria. Um, but I think it probably, the way the judging process is structured and the choice of the judges and the man booker, guards against a sort of tokenist approach to, uh, to selection to the extent that that's possible.
0: Thank you very much. Um, I hope that um, you will join me in thanking Sir Howard for sharing with us um, the sheer breadth of his reading experience since um, he has read probably four or five years' worth of of what we would read in a very short space of time. But also I feel very reassured, having heard him tonight, at the great integrity with which the Booker Prize is judged um, against all sorts of charges which the judges have had to fend off time and time again. So it's very cheering to me to to listen to the the commitment and the energy and the profundity that's been brought to this role by the judges this year. um, Under Sir Howard's guidance, so um, if you would put your hands together, please, and thank him.